So we're going to get into the Word today, and we're starting a new message series that we're going to kick off for the next number of weeks. I'm really excited about this. You'll hear from different members of our preaching team really over the next two months, and we're going to kind of take our time going through the epistle of James, the epistle of James. And you may or may not have known this, but James and this particular book, this letter, uh, that author, James, was actually the brother of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And I've thought about this, I think about things, maybe you do too, um, like this, but it couldn't have been easy being Jesus' brother. I mean, can you imagine you could never win an argument, right? And I mean, you know how it went half the time, oh, I know Jesus, you're perfect, right? Well, actually, I am, you know, and so he was the brother of our Lord. Scripture actually tells us that he uh, did not, that Jesus' siblings did not believe in him while he was on the earth, but James, we know, later came to confess Christ as his Lord and Savior and eventually went on to be one of the great leaders of the New Testament church. Actually, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. History tells us that uh, James was martyred around the year 62 A.D. by stoning. But James is known, well known in his epistle um, for confronting what we would call a bland or stale Christianity, that he was confronting some of the things that were present among the believers in the church by way of sinfulness and sinful deeds, confronting and challenging them in an effort to help lead the church to be really the authentic church and the authentic representation to the rest of the world of what a life lived serving Jesus Christ is supposed to look like. So let me just ask you a question. Is it appropriate for us to challenge each other and challenge ourselves and be confronted with sinfulness and errant ways if they're in our life or in the body of Christ? Yes, absolutely, right? In fact, sin is to be confronted, not avoided. If it is avoided and tolerated, then the allowance of that, listen, this is crazy, but it actually does, it's not just null and void and just this quiet thing that goes unnoticed. The longer it remains in our lives or in the body, it leads to division and destruction. It leads to more harm. And so James was known for that, for kind of coming at and challenging a lot of things that were happening, and basically saying, which I think is good to say in any age of the church, church, let's level up, let's examine what authentic Christianity looks like. We're going to tackle some subjects throughout the series, like greed, anger, hypocrisy, uh, different things like that, and just look at what the Bible has to say about these, and then where those things exist what God really intends to exist, which is the fruit of things that would uh, run those out of our lives. Instead of anger, we have the fruit of patience and long-suffering. Instead of greediness, we have the fruit of kindness and generosity. Are you following me? And so we're going to look at those things. I would like to say this. When it comes to our view on topics like greed, 
or lust or things like that. The Bible helps to shape our view towards these things. It's, it's the compass. It's the plumb line. But we, as a part of the church, the body of Christ, we should not be surprised or thrown off if the secular world or unbelieving world does not see these topics the same way we would as believers. Does that make sense? It's, it's like when an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever, it shouldn't surprise us. I think sometimes we miss that. We get that. It's, it's important for us to hold each other accountable, but we have to recognize the secular world does not necessarily approach their view on these things the way a Bible-believing Christian would. So then what is our recourse? What is our, our, our follow-through? I believe our follow-through is first and foremost that we model the fruits of obedience. We model that. And I say the fruits of obedience because it's not like we are, you know, miserable and agonizing over trying to be faithful and obedient to the Lord. When we walk in obedience, there is actually fruit that abounds in our lives. There's a fulfillment and a joy and a peace from walking in obedience to Christ that the world should be able to look upon and be drawn to and desire what the fruits of that obedience are producing in our lives. Are you with me? So the title of the message series that we're going into is called Walk the Walk. Everybody say, Walk the Walk. Everybody look to your neighbor, Kurt. Oh my gosh, it's good to see you. His, his, your voice is at a pitch that nobody else's is. I heard that. Walk the wall. I can't even do it. <laughs> uh, so walk the walk. We are going to uh, start out by reading in the epistle of James chapter 1. Go to verse 21 if you have your Bibles. If not, then we will, the, the words will be up on the screen as well. All right, verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does." Amen, amen. So week one today in this series of Walk the Walk, we are going to talk about the subject of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Jesus said in many occasions, don't be hypocrites or woe to you hypocrites. That word that is used in the Greek, I think you will find this kind of interesting that word is, uh, the definition of that means somebody who says one thing but does another. Who claims something in word but their lifestyle and their deeds do not align 
they show something different. That's a hypocrite. I think we would all probably agree that hypocrisy is a big turnoff. People who are preaching and espousing certain things very passionately, yet in their own life, they lack the integrity of actually holding true to these things that they espouse. Would you agree that few things are worse than hypocrisy as far as turning us off to whatever it is that that message being portrayed might be? The word actually that's used in the New Testament in Greek was a word they often used to describe actors in a theater. You know, theater was very popular back in the times of the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, coliseums and temp arenas and things like that. And they would call an actor that word a hypocrite, hypocrotes, or hypocrates is how you say that in Greek. They would call an actor a hypocrite because, listen, the actor would come out on stage and they would wear a mask to hide their true identity. They would portray a character or some sort of personality, but they were really hiding who they were behind the mask. So I think in, you know, ancient performance theater, we can understand how that would make sense. But how many would you agree with me in our own lives that that is not something that we would want to embody? to be wearing a mask to the people around us, hiding our true identity and hiding who we really are. Many times people who are bound up in hypocrisy are constantly chasing and laboring to try to maintain their cover because they have this fear that's lingering that if I get found out, if people really discover who I am, then everything begins to fall apart. But Jesus invites us into a life of authentic living, genuine Christianity, where we're not trying to be perfect, we're not trying to labor to be perfect, but we are desiring to live a life that is going after the things of God and living in obedience to Him. How many know it's okay and it's important that we are seeking to walk in obedience to the commands and the principles that the Lord lays forth for us in His Word. Amen. So point number one, if you're taking notes here, is be a doer. Be a doer. In those verses that we opened up with, it said, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So, James makes a really important connection, and I want to acknowledge to you that, that this, this can be taken out of context. In fact, it has been taken out of ta- context by a lot of people in the whole grace and works discussion, right? Because James is challenging, essentially, fake Christianity, and he's saying that if your faith is genuine, you'll be a doer of the Word. Now, what he's not saying... Just so we're clear, and this is not a message to unpack this whole truth, but what he's not saying is that by works or deeds that we can ever earn salvation or God's grace or God's forgiveness. In fact, I'll tell you flat out, it can't be done. It cannot be done. But James is making a very important connection that I think we need to make, and he is saying 
that these things really do go hand in hand. That if faith has genuinely been birthed in a believer's life and they have come to the place of salvation where they're born again, again, not perfection afterwards, but there will be fruit and good works that will follow the grace that we have received. You see that? Making sure the order is right, we receive grace, but when we've received grace, then we are compelled to a life of good works, and fruit will come out of our lives. We're not chasing good works to earn anything, we're actually living a life of good works out of obedience to the one who has forgiven us and put us in right standing with him. And it's a very important distinction. In fact, James is going so far, I believe, to say, and this is where this this does get to be a kind of uh, complicated discussion at times, okay? I admit this, but I'm just telling you, this is what I really believe James is saying, is that if it really is genuine faith, if your Christianity is real, then works and fruit will follow you. I think that's a question worth asking, right? That we could look at our lives and look at fruit or lack thereof and ask questions like, did I really hear what the Word said and did I really surrender to it? I mean, sometimes people want to stay way far away from that discussion in the church, but I think that the question we ask of, is my life really aligning with what the Word is saying it needs to look like is a question that needs to be asked. Jesus said a lot of things. He said, and the Bible says other things too, where it says, by this, such and such, the world will know you're my followers. You remember that? You heard things like that. He said, uh, he, in John 17, he said, if they are one in you as you and I are one, meaning they're unified, then the world will know that you sent me. He said things like in 1 John, the Bible says that if we keep his commands, then we know, this is interesting, that we even ourselves know that we are in him and that he lives in us. He says, by the fruit, you can judge the tree. Everybody with me so far, right? And so he also says that if a person is a a hearer only and not a doer as well, this is this is strong. He says that person is deceived. That person is deceived. What is a deceived person? It's a person who is operating under a false reality. I don't know about you, but here's what I found. People who are highly deceived really believe what they believe. They're committed to it, aren't they? But he's saying that when you hear only and you're not a doer, then that person is is under a spirit of deception. Here's what I believe is, is really happening is that a lot of times people can hear truth, but not really hear it. Remember when Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's a difference in in. Things being sound waves coming out and us listening and picking up on that and hearing it versus really receiving it and surrendering to it. And a lot of times when people hear truth, there is an initial 
reaction that's pleasurable, kind of tickles their fancy a little bit. Maybe their world is turned upside down and they think this might be a good solution, a good option. And they hear that and they think, okay, that, that, that can fix my problem. But really deep down inside, they're not genuinely submitting and surrendering to the authority of that word to the point where it gets in and begins to actually change their life and lifestyle, right? When the word gets in us, how many know that it actually confronts and messes with our life and our lifestyle? And James is just making a really important point that needs to be made. He's saying, when you really commit your life to Jesus Christ and it's happening, then transformation will begin to flow in your life. Faith is how we approach Christ. Fruit is evidence we got there. Fruit is evidence that we got there. And so he's saying that there shouldn't be this disconnect like there is for so many people where they're going around claiming certain things, but yet not even living a life or modeling a life that truly represents the freedom and the goodness and the joy that actually comes from that. They're actually misrepresenting that. They are a hypocrite. Wow. Now, let's just, be, let's just be honest and real here. Every one of us can be prone to hypocrisy. Right? Anybody in the room? Perfect? Good. We're in good company then. All right. There was one. <laughs> there was one. He modeled it perfectly. And he showed us how to walk the walk. But you got to know that he's, he's not asking for perfection. Again, we can never get there through our works and through our deeds. But when grace is truly invaded and overwhelmed a person's life, it's absolutely biblical that fruit should follow. It's not that we clean everything gets changed overnight. It's a, it's sanctification is a process from the new birth to the grave. But we should see evidence of transformation in our lives if we truly are following Christ. When it's not genuine, here's what can happen. People can hear things that are truth. Ooh, that inspires me. That makes me feel good. That, maybe that'll be my solution but they're unwilling to change anything as a result of the truth colliding with their lifestyle. And then they go forth. This is, this is what always saddens me. And then sometimes think the word doesn't work or doesn't work for them. And here's the reality. Is that in order for the word to work for a person, they have to appropriate it in their lives. Knowledge of God is not the same as surrendering and submitting our lives to God. In fact, he even says this. I believe this is in chapter 2. He says, so you believe that there is a God. Is that enough to save you? Even the demons believe and tremble. Take that in. That should hit us. 
That means just because I believe there's a God, how many people around, oh yeah, I believe in God, there's a God out there. I would say that, that, is, that does not mean that person has found salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. If even the demons can believe that, then there's something more in us that needs to happen for that word to get in there to produce the transformational result that it has the capacity to. The full potential and capacity to save our souls and to produce transformational change in our lives is in every single part of this word right here. Jesus said, these words are my spirit and they're my life. It's a living word. It is fully active and operable and has the potential to transform every person's life who submits and surrenders to it. But just because it's heralded in the air and people hear it does not mean that they are appropriating that word in their lives through a spirit of submission and surrender. We have to say this word is authority and we bow to its authority and then, and then the Lord will come and help us by making the changes and transformation in our lives that we desire and that we are submitting to, right? So point number one is was... Uh, uh, be a doer. And before I move on, I'll just say this. Th- this is a genuine burden that I have. And I just think that the Lord is... I talk to a lot of other pastors, and a lot of pastors are like, yep, I, I'm with you on that, feeling the same thing. We never know, obviously, what the eternal condition inside of a person's heart is. Right? Jesus alone has the ability to peer into the human heart. But by, when it comes to preaching and sharing the gospel and making whatever contribution God sees fit for me to make in the body of Christ in my time, I can say this, here's the deep burden that I have, is that we want to make sure that people are saved. We want to make sure that people are coming to the place where that they understand salvation is about grace and forgiveness, but grace and forgiveness come after repentance and surrender. And repentance and surrender comes when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. And I will, I'm just passionate about that and making sure that people know that they, that when it comes to salvation, that they are hearing the truth and it's not some surface level message that's knowledge of, but not a surrender to. Amen? Okay, not a lot of you with me on that one, but that's okay. <laughs> Point number two, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Let's go back to verses 23 through 25 real quick. Chapter one. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But when he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. Greg, would you bring that up for me? So this is, I love this. He is saying that the word of God... Whoa. Uh, He's saying that the Word of God is, it's like a mirror. And I am so grateful for this. It's like a mirror 
in the sense that when we peer into it, it actually reflects back what is instead of what we want to see, right? You ever go to the department stores and you you try on clothes and you stand in front of their mirrors? I think there's something funny going on there. I mean, I'm six foot two in every one of those things when I look at it, right? I I think they're going to start putting filters on those things. You know, look at it and you're, holy cow, I just, my countenance is even better in this, this outfit. But a mirror, it reflects back what is, not what we want. It's reality. Shows us what we need to see. We can't really examine ourselves without a mirror. And we can't really figure out how to make changes that we need to make to get where we want to be without the mirror. That makes sense, right? The Word of God is like that. We, we definitely say that we sit down and we read the Word, and we should. But you know what I think actually happens even more than we read the Word? The Word reads us. <clears throat> Sorry, I felt that. Uh, the Word reads us. It reflects back what is, not necessarily what we just want to see. And I'm grateful for this, that we have the Word of God for this, because what this tells me is that I'm not trying to compare myself to any other standard or any other person. The only standard or comparison I'm making is to Jesus Christ. He is the standard, and this Word defines it for me. And He will reflect back what it is that I need to see instead of what I want to see. You know what also is beautiful, though, about the Word of God? Is that it not only is revealing to us, it inspects us and it reads us, but it carries forth the same transformational power to actually help us produce the changes in our lives that we need to produce in order to live the life of obedience. Aren't you grateful for that, that Jesus doesn't look back and say, here's what's wrong, now go make yourself right. He says, I need you to see these things, but I need you to be desperate for me to bring the change in you so that you bear my image to the world. That's why it says in Romans that as we walk with Christ in submission, that we are gradually continuing to be transformed more and more into His image. He is the standard. He is the comparison that we look at and set ourselves against. But then He helps produce the changes in our lives. The same power is in the Word to walk us through and lead us through the changes that we need to make. That's great news. I mean, that's great news because that means that a person doesn't have to look into that mirror and see things that they need to get rid of, that need to be purged out of them, errant ways, wicked thoughts, any kind of, you know, uh, iniquities. We don't look into that and then all of a sudden drown in an ocean of self-pity and condemnation, which would be the case if Jesus wasn't right there saying, now let me help you make these changes so you can be the person that I died for you to be. Isn't that great news? But we still need to see. Wouldn't you agree? 
Here's what's funny about the mirror in this illustration. As he says, we need to look in the mirror. I need to look into this mirror. Before I can help anybody else look into the mirror. Mm. This, is, this is where we get to the root of hypocrisy, I think. Is that so many times people look into this mirror. And he says they walk away and they forget what they saw. They're not even acknowledging. They're not even accepting and surrendering to what this word is saying. And you know what ends up happening? This is how they use the word. (laughs) Take a look at yourselves. Look at all the changes you need to make. Look at all the things you don't have right. Look at what's wrong with this place. (laughs) And then a person who has a spirit of hypocrisy becomes very harmful to other people. You see, when I do this, and I look at this thing first, and I let it read me, and I let it change me, then I'm worthy to help other people. But when I don't do this first, and I try to go use the word to help other people, here's what I'm very prone to now. A critical spirit and a judgmental spirit. Now let me ask you, how far does that get us with people? Nowhere. In fact, instead of being drawn to the message that we bear and the one that we represent, unfortunately people are running away. We're hurt and wounded. And it doesn't have to be that way. You see, when I actually do look in this mirror and I examine it and I let it change me and I let it read me, And then I go and have the privilege of helping other people. Now I can do that out of a spirit of love and compassion. Because I I know what I've had to receive. I know what I've needed help with. And now I can go and represent a true message, which is we are all in need of mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Jesus said, how can, you, how can you help a brother get a speck out of his eye if you're not willing to get the log out of your own eye? Now, it's interesting because he never said we don't help people get specks out of their eye. We should. He just said you can't do that until you get the log out of your own eye first. And so when it comes to the word of God as we approach it, it's a mirror that reads us first. That we have to constantly let inspect us and be the standard, the authority that we hold ourselves up against. He says when you receive it, that you should receive it with meekness. And frankly, I would tell you there's not another way to do that. Meekness is humility. It's, It's recognizing I am totally lost apart from Christ. I'm completely desperate for him. And everything that I need can be done in and through him. It's that meek, humble spirit that comes to the word of God and to Jesus himself and says, there's no hope apart from you. But in you, all things are possible. There is no other option. There is no plan B. There is no rival. There is no other king. 
He is the only one. Coming to his word in meekness is a reverence and a humility knowing I'll be lost without you, but through you all things are possible. It's a reverence. It's an understanding that this is the authority. It's the plumb line. It doesn't change. It's steady and consistent. We don't change the word to fit our lives. We change our lives to fit the word. It kneels. It submits. And then God helps us to make those changes as we move along. Amen? It says you don't look in the mirror and, and forget what you saw. Um, receive it with meekness. And then point number three is implanted word. And so when we actually receive it, it gets implanted in our heart. All right, so we come to the word of God with meekness. And you got to know, when you come to the Lord, the Bible says in Hebrews, we come boldly to the throne of grace. So come to it as, as an understanding that you are approaching a king. Think of the posture that one would have when approaching a king. Now, we know as we walk up that we're there because we belong. We've been granted access. We have a right to be there. But we're still approaching a king. He's still up there on the throne. And so there is a humility and a reverence as we do, knowing he's the king and we serve him. And he calls the shots and dictates what a life lived for him looks like. And then the word gets in us. It says it gets implanted, which actually means to be engrafted into. It, it, it literally means to be like woven throughout and affect and touch every part of. You ever seen uh, like maybe uh, grapes like at a vineyard or a really flourishing vine when it's growing and they start putting trellises all around it and it just keeps growing and growing upward and outward and it just keeps bearing more and more fruit, right? You know what I'm talking about? You get the picture in your head? So when the word gets implanted in us and engrafted, it takes up residency in our spirit. Proverbs 14.33 says, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. It's become a part of us, and now it begins to grow and intermingle and intertwine into every part of our lives, and that word begins to bear fruit in every part of our lives. Our lives are touched, changed, transformed, disrupted, but it brings forth fruit-bearing growth throughout our life, not just now, but in all of the years and seasons that are ahead. There's even compounded fruitfulness that multiplies throughout the seasons in front of us. But that word takes up residency when we hear it and we submit to it. The opposite of that, of implanted and engrafted, would be like a seed that got thrown on the ground and then it did something for a second, but then it died out because it never actually got in the soil and began to grow. The potential was always there, but the condition that it met is what was different. You with me? So it gets implanted in us when we receive it with meekness and we surrender to it. He said in verse 25 
that he, this, this man who uh, hears it and does it continues on in it, and this one is blessed in all he does. I don't know if you get this or not, but when the word really does get in you, producing fruit is the only thing that it can do. Mm. It's just going to produce fruit because it's growing. It's bringing it forth. We're not producing the fruit. God is producing the fruit in us. We're abiding in the vine. We're walking with him. Right? He says that the person who continues in it, this one will be blessed. So when we really hear the word and we really surrender to it, it is going to improve our lives. It's going to. It's going to improve our lives as it continues to grow and bear fruit for us. Let me tell you something. This is what Satan does not want you to know. He wants people to think if they follow God's laws and his principles, that they will be miserable, agonizing, and giving up, giving up everything that's fun or that life has to offer. When the Bible promises just the opposite. It says you can never really truly know life apart from him. Wow. But when we walk in it it's, and we receive it, it's going to improve our lives. And I'll tell you this, you get, you get a revelation of the scripture that gets in you, it's going to have an immediate impact. There's going to be a, a, a quickening in the moment the Holy Spirit is applying it to. But as that thing begins to grow, you just watch and see how it doesn't start hitting your relationships, how that vine doesn't grow into the trellis of your work life, how that vine doesn't grow into the trellis of your friendships and then your marriage and then your household. And all of a sudden, everything that you do by way of life is being affected and improved and transformed by the power of the word of God that's growing and operating and bearing fruit in your life. Wow, has the power and ability to do that. And he says, he looks into the perfect law of liberty. I love that he calls the word the perfect law of liberty. Because it's a law in the sense that it has commands, principles, and precepts. But just think about this for a second. He doesn't call it a law of bondage. He calls it a law of liberty. So the law itself in God's word, it's not a law of bondage. What that would be is that I'm constantly trying to do everything that this tells me to do in my own strength, and I'm never going to measure up. That would be a law of bondage. He instead says it's a law of liberty. It's a law, yes, there are principles and precepts, but it's liberty or it's freedom because we are literally liberated by grace to pursue and obey this word out of conviction and compulsion, not out of an effort to try to earn anything from God anymore once we've received his grace. It is a law of liberty, wow, and not of bondage. I'm grateful for that. Is anybody else grateful for that today? And so it's not a quest for perfection as much as a liberation from the things that hinder us. Hmm. It's a law of liberty. He says, just one last thing on this. He says earlier, we're uh, in chapter 1, 
I believe, he said that if anyone breaks a single command of Scripture, think about this. This will tell you why grace is so important. He said, if anyone breaks a single part of the law, one little tidbit of it, they are guilty of the entire thing. Because the essence of the law is that you would have to perfect it. So if you violate one little part ever in your entire life, I I messed up a long time ago on that one. I don't know about you. If you violate one part of it, then you're guilty of all of it. Let me say that another way. If you don't uphold the law perfectly from the day you're born until the day you die, then you're condemned under it. But Jesus said, I bring grace. So we are forgiven of our imperfection and then we are compelled to obedience and fruitfulness, not of an effort to earn anything. Are you getting this today? I, this is so important. Not on an effort to earn anything, but we are compelled to a life of fruitfulness and obedience because it's a law of liberty that's freed us from the bondage of having to perfect the law. Now we operate under grace. And frankly, when we've really laid eyes on Jesus and we've really understood grace, this is kind of my personal way of saying this, you, you simply just cannot remain the same. You, you just can't. The gospel demands a changed life. Would you agree with that? It demands a changed life. Je- what did Jesus say? He said, forsake the world and follow me. Right? We all know that. Forsake the world and follow me. Let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, okay, you're forgiven, grab everything you can get your hands on and that you can carry and bring it with you while we go. He did not say that. He said, forsake the world. It means there is nothing that I am unwilling to let go of for Jesus so that I may be able to lay hold of everything that he has for me. James said, be a doer of the word. You know what he didn't say? I always think these things are fun. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, I really suggest that you consider being a doer of the word also. It's like non-negotiable, the way that the writing style is given and the way that it's laid out. He said, be a doer. But this last thing I'll say on this, this is awesome. But he says, be a doer of the word. He did not say do the word. And that may sound sim- simple, but it's, it's actually very profound. Because what he was using in that command was the noun form of the word. Doer. The eight doer. It was not the verb, which would be do. So what is he saying? It's not just about an action for an action's sake. Being a doer means that you are actually doing out of the character of being a doer. It's like saying worshipers worship. We worship because in our heart we are a worshiper. 
doers do. He's saying when you're transformed in your character, in God's nature, then the nature of being a doer is now in you. And the doing part of that, the grace of God is there to empower and assist and enable us to do throughout every progressing season and journey that we will face in our lifetime. And we are all on our way there. We have to allow the word to confront with our evil hearts and errant ways and get beneath the surface so that it can mess with our lives and lifestyles. And so that's the difference in the implanted word is that the seed actually breaks the ground. It actually gets into the soil. It gets into the soil because we've approached it with reverence, with meekness and humility, and we've become submitted to it. Non-negotiable. I'm not coming to the Lord negotiating terms on His word and His authority. I'm literally saying, and and this is the, the posture, okay, Lord, I haven't even opened this yet today, but when I open it, I'm praying you show me what I need to see. And when I see it, I'm already prepared and predisposed and ready to align myself with it no matter what it is that you choose to show me. I'm already in a posture of meekness and obedience before I ever even open it up. And then God says that person will continue on in it and he'll be blessed in everything that he does. Amen. Is this helping anybody today? Amen. So we were doers, not just hearers only. I think I'll close there. Look, maybe you're here and you have heard the word. You've heard about the Bible. You've heard about Jesus. Right? Things have been spoken into the air and you've heard it. So you have knowledge of things. But really... That word never actually got implanted in your heart, meaning you never really surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ and made him not only savior, but lord of your life. And you would say, now today, you are ready to do that. You are ready to lay your life down, to surrender to Jesus Invite him into your life and give him the reins and give him control. I promise you, there is no more important decision than we will ever make this side of heaven than this right here. What will we do with Jesus? Will we accept him or will he reject him? And let me just silence the lie of the enemy if I can in this moment. There is nothing that you could possibly give up for Christ that would even come close to comparing to the reward and the blessing that he has praying for you in doing so. Maybe you're a second kind of person. You're here today and you would say, I've given my life to Christ. I have chosen to serve him. I have surrendered and submitted my life to him. Maybe it was years ago or wherever in your past. But right now, at this moment in your life, you would say that you've walked away. You've walked away and you're, you're wayward, you're, 
you've taken control back of your life. And this path of your own instead of God's has led you to a place of heartache, dysfunction, despair, emptiness, hopelessness. You are reaching and grasping for solutions in the world and you can't find them. There are quick fixes and short-term antidotes out there, but it isn't long before every one of them wear off and you're left wanting more again. Now, I want to say this to you and I want to say it lovingly and firmly. If you continue on that path, you will be met with greater levels of destruction. The time to turn around and come back to the Lord will be now. Just like the first person who cannot earn forgiveness and grace into the presence of God on their own through their works and deeds. You are not here today to try to earn your way back to the master. He is a father with open arms inviting you to come to him. But just like the first scenario, it's not a negotiation. You have to be willing to lay everything down.